Welcome and thanks for listening. My name is Christian Buckley, and you're listening to the Collab Talk podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Michelle Moore, founder of Mind Equity, on the impacts of employee well being on workplace productivity and innovation. And welcome to another episode of the Collab Talk podcast, where we discuss the convergence of technology, business productivity, and collaboration culture. My guest today is Michelle Moore. Hello. Hello. A, a former partner at both Ernst & Young and PricewaterhouseCoopers, and now the founder of Mind Equity, based out of Toronto, Canada, where she works with organizations and their leadership teams to improve organizational focus and employee well-being. And we're focusing today on that topic of employee well-being, which is, you know, everybody's talking about it. I'm glad people are talking about this. But being a soft skills guy and I, I kind of a, a leadership development junkie for many, many years of working within tech, and there's been so little focus on that side, uh, what I think is the most important aspect, certainly in team building, uh, is making sure that people are healthy and happy uh, in those roles. You want to keep the good employees. And so being thoughtful, mindful of what's working and not working is, is important. But we're also going to talk about how disengaged employees impact much more than their own personal productivity, but an organization's ability to innovate. So welcome. Thank you, Kristen. Good oh, to be here. That's a lot. So did, I, did I adequately describe your company's focus or maybe tell us a bit more about what you're doing with Mind Equity? You know, as I work with more and more teams, it's ever evolving. And, and what has shifted in the last three months, I think, is this holistic now view that in order to innovate well and have employee be, uh, well-being, that we need to look at this, this, I call it the secret asset or the asset that only Silicon Valley is paying attention to. And that asset is attention. So we know from the attention economy, we know from the social dilemma that our attention is worth a lot of money. Now, turn that inwards. You're a tech company or you're a knowledge worker company. You're an innovative team. You're creating value for clients. If you are not acting, behaving as though attention is your most valuable asset, how are you going to have well-being? How are you going to innovate well? How are you going to be effective? So that is really the new, the new thought um, about looking at attention as an asset, just like money. That's interesting. So how do you define that uh, of attention? Because I think of, so I've been through like a leadership development training where it was a big focus of that was built on some of the psychology principles of being present and where it was actually like a, almost like kind of a, a um, uh, how to describe this to, to like feel yourself sitting in your chair, like that kind of focus, like yeah. doing some degree of meditation on a daily basis, relaxing so that you're not being taken sideways on everything, all the flashing, the squirrels that pop up during our day of all the things of email, the, of the, the various chats, all the tools, the technology that we use, our phones, uh, the family, the dog that's running up because he wants to go for a walk. And I just said that out loud. So he might've heard me. He might come downstairs now. Uh, but with all of that, is, is that what you're talking about with attention where you're, it, it, it's that presence of like being aware of your, your surroundings that even down to like breathing techniques to, to be present with yourself. So it's one of the five components to the work design that I help teams do. And this, this component is more akin to focus. So focus is different than attention because focus is a skill. It's a skill, it's an act of will, and it's how we cause ourselves to be concentrated on something. Mm. And focus can be trained. And you mentioned some of the techniques to train focus meditation, being present in the body, those, and there are lots of apps and practices to be able to train your focus. So that's definitely a component of it. But the, the other piece of focus relates to job role design. So mm -hmm. in a particular job, 
do I actually know as a knowledge worker, as an engineer, as a tech person, do I know which activities that I'm doing, you know, on a monthly basis primarily contribute to the value that I'm trying to create or mm. to the innovation that I'm trying to create? And when I ask teams this question, you know, do your value creation portfolio, what does your pie look like, your pie of time? And most of them actually don't really know how much value creation activities based on our definition in our company, in our team, or personally for ourselves, what is our definition of value creation? How am I actually spending my time that is directly linked to this value creation? And if I don't know the answer to that question, how can I design my calendar how can I design my collaboration with others to make sure that I'm doing as much as I can, uh, spending as much time as I can on these value creation activities, knowing full well that it's never 100%, right? Because we always have logistical admin things that we're doing, but what is the balance of that portfolio for focus? Um, so that's the starting point, actually, uh, for, for the work on harnessing attention, knowing what focus is as a skill set to be trained, like you mentioned, meditation or other, other um, tools, which I don't teach, but that is, that is definitely um, an asset when companies are doing that. But yeah, what's this, what's this value creation portfolio? You know, there's, it just made me think, uh, so in the early nineties and I was new in the work workforce, I, I had uh, somebody that I worked with that went and paid out of their pocket. They flew out and went to a conference. It was around the, the, the daytime or the planners, you know, the, the spiral bound like that. And there was a whole methodology to tracking your schedule and managing all of that. And I was, I remember being so jealous around that because this is a person who was already pretty well organized. I think they were inclined you know, to, towards that, that type of methodology and those kinds of tools. I was more on the technology side like, I just want, I want a digital version of that. I don't want to carry around and be yeah. constantly going through it. Cause I just remember the time where the person left it in somebody else's vehicle that dropped them off and it wrecked uh, that day and a good portion of the rest of the week, not having their schedule. Uh, but, uh, but that kind of planning around uh, uh, and knowing how your daily activities roll into what I need to accomplish, what my own commitments, my own goals, my own tasks and assignments are, you know, within my role, how the things that I'm working on and focused on impact my direct team, how my team's activities, how those all roll up into what our business unit is doing to what the whole company is trying to do. Understanding, I, like this is in, an area that I'm very passionate around about the uh, objectives and KPIs, like that part of it. And having a shared understanding across the organization of what needs to be done so that I know day to day how what I'm doing drives toward what my CEO has outlined for this fiscal year. This is what we're, our goals are, what our strategies are. This is what we need to accomplish. I need to have that connection. I need to know that I'm driving towards, I'm building towards the shared goals and plans Otherwise, if, if, we're, if we don't know that, how do I know that I've succeeded or exceeded those expectations? Or, or, or on the other side, and I've, I've had some not so great managers where even where I've had those pieces that came in and for political reasons, there were things that were portrayed as failures, even though I delivered exactly what we had agreed upon, uh, you know, but that's a different, I know that's a, that's a, good and bad managers. That's a whole nother topic there. But I, so I know that with your, with your background in tech, and we're going to come back to kind of the methodology and how you approach this with, with organizations. So with your background in tech and management con, uh, consulting, how did you make this transition? Or has it always been part of the way of what you've done in those previous roles? How did you make this transition into this category of working with uh, leaders and with organizations? Yeah, so I, my career um, started 
and I'll date myself here, right? Um, in 1995, um, with PW, with Pricewaterhouse at the time, and uh, I started in the performance improvement practice, and immediately that turned into the SAP implementation practice. Hmm. So I started doing, you know, I became a FICO certified SAP FI module configurer, and and then more that morphed into always doing tech-driven change projects, but then I was more on the people side. And then I ended up also working a lot in building practices, you know, to, to make partner, you have to build practices and build yeah. books of business. Mm -hmm. And so building practices like the cybersecurity practice and, and working always with technology teams, but being more on the business side of the tech. And so it evolved in, in that way, right? So, so through my career, um, you know, I moved from implementing actual and configuring actual systems at the very beginning to more of the people side and then the business side of how does technology deliver value to clients, right? And why should we implement this, et cetera. When I moved to Canada 11 years ago, I also made the shift because I decided to leave the corporate world. I was very burned out. I had been working in Russia in Moscow. I was based with the Central East European practice um, for 15 years. And as you can imagine, Moscow is a high stress environment in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And then being a partner, you know, in one of these big four firms is also high stress. So I came to Canada, started a new family, you know, and, and uh, started a new life really. And that made me do some self-awareness work, I would say, right? And through that self-awareness work, I also realized, do I want to be in this state of overwhelm all the time? So I'd be, I was very drawn to the social impact space in Canada, the social innovation space, began to work with smaller companies. And also when I discovered and trained at MIT in Theory U and holistic and sense-making change, that got me to think not just about the tech pieces, but more about the human pieces. And that's how this shift very slowly occurred into a more holistic look at the way work gets done. Mm -hmm. um, and this shift from talking about productivity to talking about effectiveness rather than productivity, right? So to me, there's a huge difference now between those two words, and I am no longer a productivity fan. I am an effectiveness fan, i.e. getting the right things done, not right. just getting stuff done, right? So right. so those that shift has happened, and, and, and because of the changing environment, because of the pandemic, because I'm also now becoming a digital nomad, um, I'm constant every three months, every three to six months with the learning from the teams that are happening and what's happening in the world around, um, this, this work is evolving constantly. Well, yeah, there is a lot that's happening in this space, which is fantastic. I mean, I, I, again, you know, at my, I, I think very similar path where I was it, it, back when you were with PW, I was at EDS. I then joined Pacific Bell uh, and was doing that. I ended up a few years later building project management organizations. And so I kind of got into collaboration technology that way, but also the team building that like, I, I think back at like the most successful times of my 30 year career have been where I've managed small teams of four to six people. And we're the most effective because we knew each other's capabilities. It was very much an, an, an activity in strength-based uh, uh, strength leadership and working together and collaborative effort around that where we played these roles. It played to my strength where I didn't, wasn't, I, I used to talk about this, the myth of the well-rounded employee. I, those people exist. There are those, those, the, there's very few of them out there, but they're just good at everything that they touch. And we all hate those people because they're good at everything and they're always likable. And I, and I hate that. <laughs> no, but it's, but I, so I realized very quickly, I said, that's not me. I like doing the things I like. There's things that I'm really good at. Not that I like doing everything that I'm good at there, but I would then go and say, well, I'm going to be more most effective when I have these roles around me to do these things where I know I don't perform as high. And, and we, I was the most effective, but I mean, like the stats around that, I was the happiest. The output was just uh, amazing around that. But interesting enough, I, I then started to become aware that that was fantastic for me. 
but not everybody on the teams that I built was as ecstatic as I was around like their roles. And so then I started paying attention to that. And, uh, and it, it, this is a, it's a moving thing. I mean, one day everybody is happy. They're thrilled with that new project. Two months go by and two of the five people on my team are not as happy because of their career progression, all those kinds of things. And so it's a dynamic changing thing, which is being like, like anything in life, like nothing stands still. It's constantly moving and evolving and you have to, this goes back to, it's a, it's a Deming principle. You're constantly optimizing the system, adjusting and looking that. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting that, I, I, so I'm, I'm happy to see that so many else in the technology sphere, that I, the world that I live in, are now thinking more about this. And it took a pandemic to get people to think more about work-life balance, which I think is a fallacy. The, the idea yeah. of work-life balance, but to be thinking more about what am I really happy doing? Is this the right role? Are we approaching this the right way? Are we listening enough to our people about the way that we operate as an organization? It's just a very healthy thing to have happened. The big question will be, will it last? You know, something you said a couple of minutes ago about goals and KPIs, mm. the shift that I'm seeing, and the, the reason I use the word, um, what does value creation mean for me personally? What does it mean for my team? And what does it mean for my company? And if all of those things are aligned, I believe those are the most successful companies. And this idea of, of value creation in, in an NGO, in a nonprofit organization, value creation is impact, social impact creation, right? right? So, yep. so we can use those terms uh, depending on which organization we're in. But this, this idea, I'm also shying away now from goals and KPIs towards sensing into what is happening around us in a very current way. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of this dynamic steering paradigm. It comes from the self-organization world. And, and in, in self-organized teams or self-organized companies like Holacracy or people following uh, Frederick Leloux's Reinventing Organizations, I work with some clients who do that. And their, their new way of doing strategy is actually sensing into the field around, i.e. the market, the people, and everything else, the pandemic or whatever, um, and, and saying, okay, yes, we have targets, but they're very loose. And we're going to instead, just like a bicycle has this dynamic steering paradigm. Yeah, we know where we're going. We're driving to you know, New York or something. We're riding a bike to New York, but we have to go around mountains and potholes and all of that stuff. And if we can lose some of the rigidity, then we're going to also be able to tap into what are our own personal goals and be very energized and very happy with the role that we're engaging in. And then this whole thing called the great resignation is going to stop, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, well, so, so here, but I think you just kind of tapped into something was my next question was around. So we are, as organizations, as people, we are, uh, we're trained on measuring quantitative improvements to the work that we're doing. So I was able, we create widgets. We were able to move from 20 widgets a month to 25 widgets a month. So that's a quantitative improvement. I can see it. I can measure that. When you're talking about qualitative improvements, especially around the way that we work, like how do you measure people are happier? How do you measure that people are more, well, again, effectiveness, efficiency is, is quantitative. Um, effectiveness, you can be creative, but again, you, it's more of a quantitative measurement of those things, but, you know, so what are some of those patterns and how organizations are looking at and measuring, are they really, you know, changing things? Are they improving the, the, the health and well-being of people? How do you measure happiness? Yeah. So the, the first uh, one clarification point maybe is that I'm not against data or metrics. I think we need both the quantitative yeah. and the qualitative. And the qualitative improves and employee well-being and happiness in the workplace improves when there is open dialogue about 
what does value mean for me? What does value mean for this team? Let's have a collective discussion around it. And let's also see if we're aligned with what is the tone at the top. And is the tone at the top, is the CEO level also opening up to this more vulnerable dialogue around the more the soft stuff about what is value for me and, and what is the balance between work and rest that I want? Do I have to you know, move towards burnout to be successful in this company or not? And so just starting that discussion about asking the question, especially personally, what is a valuable um, way of working and what do I think the highest value is that I can contribute to this role. And that then brings us to, I believe that if a person, if a professional describes themselves as that meeting energized me, this work energizes me, I am an energized professional. If they're going to say that, Retention is going to be high. You know, well-being is high if people say they're energized. And so what we're seeing now is there's more exhaustion than there is a feeling of being energized. So that is the big shift I think we need to make. We need to invest in energized teams. And then how do we get, what are the strengths of an energized team? Yeah, because that's a great point. You can be energized and still exhausted. and uh, Uh, I would argue you can't. Really? You, yeah, I would argue that if you are really being truthful, you can be hyper about something and still exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. But if you are fully energized, i.e. you are getting energy from this conversation, you feel less tired after the meeting than you did before it. That's that's true. I mean, right? It, that I think, is energized. I, I think yeah. we've all had experiences where there's like a job that is so. I have no problem getting up at five a.m. Like, in fact, I couldn't sleep. I got four and a half hours, and yet I was wide awake because I was excited to go in to that new challenge, that project I'm working on, that engagement that I was a member of. Yeah, so I've had so I understand that in the around the definitions, the way that I was thinking about this, like we could be very busy. I was thinking exhausted more of busy, no energized and busy. We can be energized yet still overloaded. Maybe that's the better. That is true. If our plate is too full, right. But then, right. There's this, this difference. Most teams that I've worked in, in my entire life, most organizations um, have rewarded me for busyness, right? This culture of busyness. And I believe that collaboration technology Slack, Teams, anything like that, even email, rewards us for looking busy, rewards us for making some silly comment, you know, in in even a collaborative document, if we're invited to participate, even if we don't have that much value to add, we might think, oh, I got invited to this Google Doc to participate, and so I better say something or people won't think I'm here. That's causing busyness, and that is causing a drain on energy. Right. And this is one of the big behavior points that I think is a huge opportunity to quickly shift in a team. That's actually one of the things that I was an early in my career as a new people manager that I learned that lesson. Uh, I always had a problem as an individual contributor before I was managing people around this, this issue with, with managers that would you know, micromanage the tasks, like the how I was accomplishing. I said, look, I know what I need to go and do. It's like, I don't need you standing behind me, directing me where to move my mouse on the computer screen. Like, and so I, I learned that about myself. I picked up some bad habits. I had to break those where if people were delivering the, you know, to the objectives, to the goals of what, what was asked of them to go and do, the, the better conversation was if they were delivering those things, I'm like, I backed off of that. And some people work better, this is years ago, worked better from home remotely because they were able to focus in on content without a lot of the distractions. Other people did not, they didn't deliver by having the flexible hours. And I had to rein them back in and, and say, no, this is not working. We need to, to, to focus on this, but then we could have that better conversation. Again, going back to the project management and PMO person of, you know, do you not have enough on your plate? Like you were able to, to get through all that, that stuff. And, finding that, that balance uh, with, with people. But that is a, it's a key part of, I, I think, key learning for managers, for organizations is focusing more on what are the outcomes, the desired outcomes, and is it consistent 
It, do we understand how we have the shared goals and it rolls up to and be less focused on certainly with more seasoned, uh, you know, uh, people that have been in a role longer, they know how to do their job, get out of the way. And uh, because that's, that is a huge problem that I see in companies where they spend so much time getting the way in the way of their employees for getting their work done. That that's a key part of management is to how can I remove roadblocks? And yet so many managers don't recognize when they are being the roadblock. And I think those are the managers that possibly have less self-awareness or that, or that have fear. If they are driven by fear that they're not going to meet their goals or that their teams are not working well, then that fear causes them to check up or micromanage more. If leadership training could be designed to remove uh, fear and to have and to build this culture of trust and then to enable more self-organization, then I think you would get less of that um, inefficiency appearing because of micromanagement, certainly. So I'm, I'm interested to know, uh, so on, on your website, so mindequity.ca, so you talk about uh, the five key elements impacting attention in mind. So I, I don't know if, you, if that's your methodology, maybe you could talk about, so what are the, you've already talked about two. Um, if you could talk about what the five are and what are some of the patterns that you're seeing in organizations? Are there common patterns or is it every time it's completely different? Yeah, so, so I've renamed this model now the attention asset model. So how to harness attention, how to design work that enables us to harness this asset that Silicon Valley certainly values so much for our own value creation. And the first one, of course, is focus. Focus being the mind training piece, as well as what do we need to focus on in terms of tasks that create value. Um, the second one is how do we design a culture that values attention from a behavioral standpoint, mindset, uh, from a value standpoint. And the third one is balance. What is this, how do we design for the right balance between data and sense-making? How do we define the right balance between work and rest? The right balance between intelligence and wisdom and the well-being component, the right balance between body and mind. And now that we were you know, in pandemic or not in pandemic, what is the right balance in terms of number of virtual meetings you participate daily versus number of physical meetings? Because I believe that there, the, the right balance is needed there as well for good innovation, good collaboration, as well as good well-being. So that's the third one. The third one is the right balance of these, these things that are all very interrelated. And then those are really the, you know, focus, culture, and balance are what I call the invisible work design elements. You can't see them as easily as you can see the two visible design elements, which are tools and the environment. So designing the right tools also has these components, subcomponents of what is my digital tool portfolio? What is the optimum hopefully minimalist uh, digital tool portfolio that allows me to get everything done I need to do, not just from a collaboration standpoint, but from an industry specific standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, what are the metrics and what are the written agreements or policies um, that we have around behaviors and teamwork? What are those written? I put that in the tool bucket too, because you can see it. Right. And then the fifth uh, element impacting our attention is how do we design our virtual work environment which includes, if we're in a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting, it includes how our meetings being facilitated for psychological safety, um, and how are we in relationship with these virtual environments, and then how are we designing, you know, our physical space around us to harness attention, um, as well as physical spaces for collaboration. So those are the five components: focus, culture, balance, tools, and environment. And I believe that to harness attention, we just have a great opportunity to quite quickly design for these five things that negatively and positively can impact our attention. And that's what I'm calling this attention asset model. So, so again, the second part of that is like, do you, do you see where, uh, are there common 
traits, common gaps within clients that you work with? Yes. Sorry. I didn't answer that question. So the, the answer to that is, is that I have, I have two data points or two tools where I collect data. Mm -hmm. One is the focus scorecard on my website where any individual can, can answer that about 300 people now have done that scorecard and the average score on that is below 40% which is very low, right? I'm, I'm saying that if you score 70 or above, you're on the road to having market advantage with well-being, together mm-hmm. with well-being. Then I have a 50 question uh, questionnaire that goes through all of these five elements, 10 questions each, that I have companies do at the beginning of a project. So if the whole team does it, and those scores are slightly higher, but still, averaging around 40%, Hmm. which tells me that there is just a huge opportunity to achieve both, you know, competitive advantage or market advantage, but without all this burnout, without all this exhaustion and without the great resignation. So those are the trends I'm seeing in the last year. Is the, I mean, is the great resignation for, and it's in the news, I'm sure everybody knows what we're talking about there. We're hearing more and more about that. There are, there are more, I don't know what the numbers are. It's not something that I've been tracking over time, but the numbers are way up of people that have just removed themselves from the workforce, you know, across the board. Uh, and, but is that more to do with like the broader, the organizational, the structure, the culture, that side, or is it more about the individual roles and whether they're well-designed or not, or they're, they're happy in those roles? I think it depends. I I think it really depends because the, so I work with a tech company here in Toronto that is very worried about the great resignation. And this is a place where people actually love to work. Uh, It gets very high scores on, you know, this is a great culture to work in. But what um, when you dig deeper and talk to some of these people considering leaving, because they're actually being open about it and having a dialogue in in this case with with the employer, um, they're simply looking at their lives as is what is can't one, can I afford not to work or can I afford to go part time? Is there something happening in my life like a a parent who's very ill that I want to care for or I simply just want to travel because I never did it after college? I mean, there's all sorts of different reasons, um, but I think what companies need to worry about the most is to prevent turnover in general, like has always been the case. How do we have happy employees? Um, but it is interesting that since 2020, more of these existential questions has come, have come into play and people are talking about this online, you know, as, is, is my work meaningful to me? Mm -hmm. Um, and if I have, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to live, you know, death is all around us right now. So we're kind of aware of, of the fragility of life. Mm -hmm. And, um, I know I'm in midlife, so I'm pondering this question. How do I have the most impact for the next time that I'm on earth? Right. And, and I didn't ask myself that question so intently, you know, even 10 years ago. Yeah. So that's my view on that question. I, don't, I mean, I don't know the answer to, to that question, the way you phrased it. You know, right. but. Well, I, and I know and I, I, there's, and, and it's, uh, you know, not to be like a gotcha question. I, I, I think exactly there's, there's not an answer. It's a discussion point around that because yeah. it's different for everybody that's, that's out there. And I'll go back to what I said at the very beginning. Like, I'm just, I'm glad people are having that conversation. If you haven't gathered this, I'm a talker. I, and it's funny if you, I, so I have six sisters and I am quiet in comparison to all six of my sisters <laughs> who I think all of them talk to each other at least once a day. Like they're in constant contact. Yeah. So just, yeah, I don't get a word in when I'm around wow, my sisters, wow, wow. Uh, you know, whether individually, much less as, as a group. Uh, but with, I'm just happy that people are having this discussion. It's always been, Again, in the project management world, the hardest discussions are the human discussions about why we're happy, we're not happy, what's working and not working. Uh, uh, we tend to, we go towards there's technology, there's process, and there's people. Technology's easy. It's, I agree. It, it's so the easiest part. And that's why we gravitate towards the easy. It's like, of course, we're going to lick the whipped cream off of this Sunday first before we dig in, uh, you know, but the, and then process again, 
harder, but still a lot less messy, a lot easier than the people side of things and those difficult discussions that have to happen, especially when you're talking about, you could be extremely happy with a high-performing team and a well-functioning organization, and then throw, somebody throws you a loop because they decide that they want to have a, start a family and you're going to lose a star employee for a while, or they're moving to be closer to a sick parent or like all of these things that can happen. And, and so you, you need to build a structure, build a team, build a culture an organization where you, it's okay to have those discussions. You'll be healthier and everyone will be happier if there's transparency in Again, the qualitative aspects of that that organization, and not enough companies, not enough leaders are opening that up. I've always say that like, I'm a big around governance, and you think of technology governance and corporate governance and IT governance and kind of all those things. But there's a, a few sayings that I use, I repeat all the time. But one of them is: the more that you involve people in the process, the more likely people will support the process. Meaning, transparency equals happier employees, whether or not they like what they're seeing through the transparency. Like we make a new rule change corporate wise, uh, but it's because compliance, we've had security breaches, we've had problems or laws have changed. So we need to change the way that we do things. Well, instead of just dictating, Hey, this, we're now doing it this way without explaining, without having a conversation, you know, employees don't, they might not be happy about some of the changes, but if you're openly discussing those things, why we're making certain shifts, certain changes, then they're going to be happier. And I think the, the, the other direction, it's also true. If employees are talking more about their goals, their aspirations, what they want to go and do, we can make as managers the, the most out of the time we have together the, to be productive and effective and drive towards those goals, but also have a, a better understanding of like, okay, I realize this isn't your goal or you're planning to go back to school in the fall so I can plan better for that transition when that change inevitably happens. And that's, in, in my mind, it all comes down to people, humans are resistant to change. Anytime there's change that's out there and everything about the human side, the health and well-being of work, it's all about change in our fight against change. I agree with what you've just said, Christian, wholeheartedly. And it, it brings to mind one of the exercises that I do with teams at the beginning around their pain points. So there's an infographic that I have on my homepage, I think is of these pain bubbles. All of these, I've got all these different colored bubbles, flavors of what is preventing uh, our focus. And one of the bubbles says, there's a presence of our hidden voices, the hidden voices of fear, cynicism, and judgment. And so one of the exercises that I facilitate, I facilitate dialogue between teams or have them do this dialogue in breakout rooms uh, on Zoom, for example, um, share, share when your hidden voice of fear comes up the most, right? Does it come up in every meeting? Does it come up only in discussions around, I don't know, salary? Um, when does this voice of fear appear? And so they have that discussion. Then they have the discussion about when does the voice of judgment come up? And generally it's, it's funny because people start laughing. They're like, oh yeah, the voice of judgment is just in my head against myself all the time. And then every time I'm listening to someone talk, I got the voice of judgment. Oh, that's stupid. Why is that person saying that? And, and then this, this voice of cynicism, right. As well. Right. Uh, and that's and the so, little voice in me that I say it's out loud all the time, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when they, so they have fun with this exercise because they don't talk about in the first stage, what their fear is. They just say, you know, we, we're human. And, and, I, and I also tell people, you know, you, if you're human, you have these three voices all the time and it's not possible to cancel them. The only thing we can do is acknowledge their existence. If we have developed a, a good level of trust in a team where we're even talking about these hidden voices, if we have the next level of trust, we're actually might share in a meeting saying, well, hey, Christian, when I heard you say that, my voice of fear arose and this is what I'm scared of. 
in related to that topic. And then the team member actually shares with the other team member exactly what they're scared of. And then they have a dialogue around that. So what that's a, to me, a very evolved and aware organization. When that happens, then just like you were alluding to the, the, positive aspect of knowing when someone wants to, you know, quit their job to go back to school, if you could know that in advance, but people are too scared to even say that because they're afraid that then they're just going to get fired. Um, but a whole nother level, um, this, these conversations around the hidden voices, well, what do we do with the hidden voices? Well, the antidote to fear is love. The antidote to cynicism is hope. And the antidote to judgment is also frankly, love or just awareness that judgment exists. And let's get our needs met so that we don't have this judgment. Um, and that ties totally into the, the, the very sexy leadership skill that is talked about a lot, which is vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And Brene Brown's vulnerability talks about that and, and you know vulnerability training. Um, we can do it at all levels just by talking about these three voices. And I think that's a huge enabler to happiness and feeling free about being your whole self at work. Well, and that's one of those techniques too, is to realize that not everybody is, it's great to go through an exercise like that. And it's almost like the laboratory version versus the real world version of it. But this is a, one of those things, which I learned over time, my career is that, uh, you know, that you, you can't uh, like in any meeting that you go into, there's always that one or those one or two people that are very comfortable to raise all their business. And then they talk the entire time and uh, and there's two ways to look at that too. You, you have to be careful. Like you want to give every other people an opportunity there. And, but then you also, you, you don't give other people opportunities by taking away opportunities from others that are able to in that setting. No, the, the better way to approach that is realize that some people in that setting are less comfortable. And so people that aren't voicing their concern, I started to learn this like, I would go like, you look like you had something. Let's have a one-on-one. Sometimes that draws things out. Or I might just say, hey, even like send in an anonymous, you know, a, a, a message or something out on a, you know, out on our Q&A, a, a, you know, thing around it or, or any questions about other topics that we haven't covered. And occasionally I would get, as a manager, would get these anonymous notes of something that somebody felt that there was inequity and imbalance in some aspect of the way that we were doing things. And then to, to read this out, it was okay that we give people different feedback loops, you know, different Absolutely. opportunities yeah. that, you know, people just do better under that. And it's the, it's the same as true about learning. We learn in different ways. Some of us can go read a book and be fine, and pick up everything that we know. Others need to have hands-on in the field experience. Some people do very well with online. I'm, I'm a human, uh, uh, you know, touch and voice and in person, like that side of it. I get energy by going to events and being around people and engaging and collaborating that way. And so even though it's great to have my team uh, and see people in the virtual method through the tools, that side of it and all the other interactions and tools, but it's still hollow, it's lacking. And I enjoy having that. Other people absolutely embrace, think this is fantastic. The, the pandemic from a work standpoint was, was fantastic in that it really uh, it celebrated their uh, uh, you know, introversion and, you know, and their ability to go and get things done the, the where that they were most effective you know, on their own as an individual go and drive towards that. So it's really recognizing that in, in all things, different people have different styles. They have different ways of approaching this. And we, that, when I hear of like diversity and inclusion and equity, like those, those discussions, it's, it, it's, it's not on the political spectrum that so much of the discourse is about. It's about recognizing that we approach things, we consume information in different ways, where you know we these different things, and you have to be aware, sensitive to, aware of those those differences, uh, and that not everybody like I have no problem. You ask me my opinion, I'll tell you. That's a fault that I I recognize about myself. It took years for me to re- realize that side so to be more empathetic. That not everybody, when they're asking for an opinion, really want an opinion. <laughs> you know, but you know, it needs to be like measured. It's, 
That's why I like, I actually like the name of your company of mind equity with the EQ capitalized of that, you know, that emotional IQ piece of that is because I think so much of the effectiveness of a leader certainly has, it's a direct connection with their uh, emotional intelligence and their, you know, at, at what level they function at and with their personality mix. Some people are again, fantastic technically, they know their stuff, they're an industry expert, they're recognized for that. And then their, their interpersonal skills are just in the toilet. Uh, and, and we all let it slide because they're so strong, so good in that, in that one area. This goes back to, uh, I made the comment early on about, uh, you know, that I, I think that um, work-life balance is a lie, that the the idea of a well-rounded employee, it's a facade. Uh, and yet, as managers, as leaders, I'm almost saying you have to be that well, well ba balanced. Or just, well, or just know when you need help. Right. Admit, I, this is not my, my superpower. So therefore, I'm going to rely on, you know, Joe or Mary to do that um, with me or help me on that. If we can admit our weaknesses, it gets much easier. Yep. But related to something you just said, um, there is a tool that is open source that I discovered a couple of years ago. It's called Liberating Structures liber at liberatingstructures.com. And liberatingstructures.com is a collection of, I think it's 33 facilitated ways to facilitate group dialogue. And it's very much designed for diversity and inclusion. It doesn't call itself a diversity and inclusion tool, but it is um, a set of tools that enables more many-to-many -many conversation than this one person talking, 20 people yeah. sitting and not having dialogue. So, so when I discovered that tool, I recommend it to everybody because anybody can pick it up and use it. You just, just go on the website and, and, and it enables, so a manager who knows how to use some of those tools, in my opinion, um, immediately gets the benefit of harnessing all the learning styles, all the communication styles so that people don't left, be left out, that, so that people are not left out. Sorry, that was wrong English. Um, so that people aren't left out. And the, the whole point to being open and aware about our own strengths and weaknesses and being aware of the strengths and weaknesses in our team members enables this. And this is actually part of environment design. And environment design being how do we hold space for a safe space for dialogue in a virtual meeting and in a physical meeting. Those are two different ways to hold space for psychological safety. And I also always ask my clients that I'm working with, when do you use an outside facilitator for a difficult conversation or a difficult meeting? And when do you just have some trained facilitators inside your own organization facilitating the meeting? So that this risk that you spoke about, Christian, that there's sometimes people who take up all the space and talk, uh, like extroverts, I'm assuming you're an extrovert as am I. Um, I was told a couple of years ago that I'm an interrupter. I get so excited about something and wanna share a new idea that I interrupt. And then it has the effect of yes, I can be one of those people that takes up too much space and talks too much in a meeting. And so that really uh, helped me just know that's a natural thing that's probably never gonna go away, but as long as I have awareness that I'm the in and a typical interrupter, um, I can pause more often and wait and see if I can make eye contact with the person I know is generally quiet. Mm -hmm to enable them enough time also then to speak. So. Well, it's, it, it, it's funny. So, so I, I am uh, guilty of that as well as my wife reminds me constantly. Uh, but, it, it, and one of the ways that I've been able to utilize that is I think it's one of my strengths. Like I have no problem getting up in front of any audience of any size and going and presenting on a topic, obviously, not being prepared to go and speak in front of an live that that's a different thing but assuming that i've prepared i have my my deck i have the demos i have my topic that i'm going to go through like i am very comfortable on a stage and doing that and that just kind of fits in with my personality of and and talking and out there but it's more of that broadcast side of that i almost satiate that need as part of my persona 
uh, through that vehicle that, you know, through this, the literal stage. Um, and I, so I am able to, it kind of satiates that need so that I can be more aware of that. Um, don't feel like I've not had enough stage time when I'm having a conversation, but you know, even like, I, I think about it that even in my interviewing skills here with the podcast, I realize I probably talk more than most podcasters around that, but I have a pink, I look at it as a conversation versus let me cue questions and then let you talk for 45 of the 50 minutes. You know, I think of it more of a back and forth, but Dialogues are always better. I like these dialogues better than like, your style. Yeah. But it's, it's yeah. certainly true when you're, you know, teaching a class or giving a presentation. And I always say, like, interrupt me, raise your hand, or just speak out. Like I am 100 percent comfortable with that. I prefer that. I hold myself in. In fact, I've even had people that know me that would be presenting and be like, Christian, I see from your face that you have a question. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I get that a lot. Um but uh, it, but it's it's great that and people that know me well can even read me from from that standpoint. I I just I don't have the poker face apparently uh, to hold in my questions. But it, no, it's a it's a fascinating space. And I know that we're 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 out of time here, but I really appreciate your time, Michelle. This is a fascinating topic. I always like to ask people kind of at the, at the close here. What are the best ways to get to to reach out to you to connect with you? Uh, you know, through mindequity.ca, of course, your website, but uh, are you active out in social and connected with people that way? Yeah, so I, um, so what I would suggest, if you want an introduction to this topic on, on how to harness attention for shifting from exhausted to energized, um, you can take that quick scorecard. There's a on mindequity.ca, CA for Canada, obviously. Uh, there is a green button called the focus scorecard and you can see, see where you're at there. And then because of my digital minimalist approach now to life and work. I am only active on LinkedIn and I am, I do a little bit of tweeting, but it's really just about, you know, who I'm podcasting with. So it's primarily LinkedIn and my name is Michelle Natalia Moore. So there are a lot of Michelle Moores out there. So there's that middle initial N and, um, and I am writing a book now. So there will be a book out, uh, in 2022, on this whole idea of harnessing attention for market advantage with well-being for knowledge worker and information and tech worker teams. Well, we'll have to uh, definitely have to come back once it's out live and you can promote that. We can dig into some other aspects yeah. of it. I'm, I, I love the, the subject matter. So I'd love to have you back and talk again. Appreciate it. It's been and, fun. And it and went by course, so fast. It felt like yeah, 10 minutes. <laughs> I, I know. And, and for those that are uh, you know hearing this via Spotify or iHeartRadio or elsewhere, Apple Podcasts, you can also go to my blog at buckleyplanet.com and, and look up, but you'll be able to find Michelle's contact information and, and information about this session as well once it's live. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Christian. Be well. You've been listening to the Collab Talk podcast. New episodes are published every Friday and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast services. Thanks for listening. Hungry for more great content? You have to check out the Shift Happens podcast. I'm your host, Dux Raymond Sai, Chief Brand Officer at AppPoint. And I sit down to chat with top business leaders and IT professionals about their most challenging modern workplace projects. Tune in to hear real-life advice from industry peers on making plans and pivots, casual conversations exploring the latest trends in collaborative Microsoft 365 technology, and easy, actionable strategies to make organizational change happen. Subscribe to the Shift Happens podcast today, available on all major platforms. Can't wait to see you there. Shift Happens Podcast.